Dr. William Hazeltine is a pioneer in biotechnology who is responsible for some of the most significant breakthroughs in genomics and treatment for cancer and HIV AIDS. He's currently the chair and president of Access Health International, where he is dedicated to ensuring that quantum advancements in medical technology translate to improved health outcomes around the world. In September 2019, he chaired the U.S.-China Health Summit in Wuhan, China, which of course was where the COVID-19 pandemic began. Today, he discusses the science of COVID-19 and some misconceptions about the disease. Let's listen in. I'm Andrew Tish. I want to welcome you all here. I'm, a, I'm one of the founders of No Labels. And, uh, these are daily briefings that we have with uh, people who really know uh, a great deal of what they're talking about. Uh, we're grateful to have Dr. William Hazeltine here with us today. And uh, Dr. Hazeltine is a pioneer in biotechnology with his work on cancer, HIV, AIDS, and genomics. He's currently the chair and president of Access Health International, a foundation active in the United States, India, China, Singapore, and the Philippines. He's also chairman of the Hazeltine Foundation for Science and the Arts. Uh, uh, Bill recently returned from Wuhan, China, of all places, where he chaired the ninth U.S. Health Summit uh, this past September. So um, uh, I know, uh, Bill, that you wanted to do more, answer questions and hear what's on our minds. So I'm going to throw out the first question for you. Tell us about uh, about Wuhan, what you saw there back in September, and uh, ultimately your impressions as to why it became the um, uh, the uh, boiling point for what we're enduring now. Um, well, thank you. And first of all, let me say, no time like the present for no labels. Uh, if we ever needed uh, bipartisanship, if we ever needed our government to uh, work well, now's the time. So uh, you were prescient in uh, understanding it and everybody uh, who's part of uh, uh, no labels, hats off. You've done a, a wonderful thing and let's hope we can get even more traction. Um, I went to Wuhan as the chair of the US-China Health Summit. That's where health policy leaders from America and China get together. Uh, it had been a very vital uh, organization with the sanctioned voice, the State Department and the Foreign Ministry uh, of China. Um, I have to say that over the last couple of years, the American side is Sort of fallen off. Uh, there's been real pressure uh, against American uh, government participation and leadership participation, and it's been uh, a little bit one-sided. It's sort of a small U.S. and a big China organization at this point. Um, but anyhow, it still exists, and we were in Wuhan. Uh, I'd never been to Wuhan, although I'd heard a lot about it because uh, the man who runs my foundation in China, in Greater China, actually. Um, uh, is from Wuhan. So I actually spent a couple of extra days and got to know some of the, uh, what the British would call the great and the good of uh, Wuhan. And I really enjoyed it. I think for those of us who don't know about Wuhan, it's sort of like their Chicago. Uh, it sits on the Yangtze River and is the transit point for almost all of China uh, for about two thirds of the population. All the goods and services and railway, everything goes through it. And it's a garden city, it's a beautiful city. It has a great history, it's where the Sun Yat-sen revolution started for 
for example. Uh, now you asked the question, why Wuhan? Um, the, re the reason is it's in Southeast Asia, it's in East Asia, and that's where the bats live that have receptors that are like our receptors for the coronaviruses. You'd be surprised to know that bats are the most widely distributed. There are something like 1,400 different kinds of bats. They're the most numerous species except for rodents, and they account for one quarter of all mammals. And they're different families of bats. The, a lot of the different types of bats that live in Southeast Asia harbor receptors that are similar to human, and they're at least uh, at least one of them, the ACE2 receptor, is what SARS uses, and it's what this virus uses. So the fact that it comes from China is not surprising, and it could have come from anywhere in China. Now, China is not the only source of nasty coronaviruses. The previous one, MERS, came from a tomb bat species in Egypt, infected camels that were sent to Saudi, and that epidemic is still ongoing. It doesn't spread as easily, it's a different receptor, but it's much more lethal. It kills about 30% of people who do get it. So it's a sort of a trade-off in these viruses. Do you kill or do you spread? This one kills some and spreads a lot. Uh, I hope that's an answer to your question. Okay, uh, well, uh, so- let me, uh, let me ask one, one other point. Okay. There's some speculation, this came from a Chinese lab. There is a definitive paper in Nature, one of the great scientific journals, which shows, I would say, nothing is ever 100% certain in science. So you never get a, a scientist to say it couldn't happen. But it's vanishingly small probability that this is a laboratory strain. And every reason in the world, from the analysis, comparative genomic analysis, to suggest that this is a natural virus that emerged from animals into humans. No reason at all to suspect that it was created. So is this the kind of thing that would eventually have happened uh, somewhere along the line and we, we just got unlucky right now or? Well, um, you know, it is, it is, I want you to think about something more general. And we live in a sea of viruses. And you have to think of viruses as very intelligent machine learning devices. Their job is to propagate themselves. And the way they've done that for about 4 billion years is to throw up random mutations and sees what fits the current ecological niche. And, you know, we've been hit by a lot of viruses in the last 20 years that we never really thought about before. They're just kind of, whatever, SARS, Ebola, Nipah, Zika, Hendra, Hotna, MERS, and now this. What's going on? Well, we have created a great ecological niche for this artificial intelligence machine learning machine to crack. What's our code? It's trying to crack a code. Our code is our immune system. First of all, there are a lot of us. There are an awful lot of us, more than we were. That's a great niche, a lot of food. Secondly, we live packed together. Thirdly, we communicate a lot, we travel, you know, if you look at just the rate of international travel, it's skyrocketed. So if you've got a problem in one place, it's gonna be, you have 7 billion people to eat. That's great for this. Third, secondly, another point, it's cracking our social inequity code. 
if you look at where this virus spreads, it spreads where people are really densely packed and don't have very good health services. That's where it's spreading like crazy right now. China, it got shut down. And curiously, I believe it's also cracking our political philosophy code. Why is America, with all its technology and health services, the worst place in the world for this virus? It's our political philosophy that the virus is cracked. It's a chink in our armor. And this virus cracked it, and other viruses will too. That may be a longer answer than you were looking for, but it's, I think, a way of thinking about this. And it also answers the other question, was this cooked up in a lab? There are a lot of things out there that are coming to get us. And we don't learn our lesson this time. We're going to be in the soup over and over and over again. So, so what did the Chinese do to shut it down that we have not done? I'll give you a story of a good friend of mine. I wrote this up as an interview. He flew from Frankfurt to Shanghai. And two days later, he and his wife got a knock on, you know, got a call. They'll have to go downstairs. There's a car waiting for you. Pack your bags. There was somebody on your plane who tested positive for COVID. Please come with us. For the next 11 days, they were isolated in separate hotel rooms. They couldn't open the door. People brought food to their rooms in hazmat outfits. Once a day, somebody with a hazmat outfit came in. They were given a bucket. And my friend said, he looked at the bucket, they got, the woman said, toilet. He thought, oh my God. No, 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 no. One liter for number one plus six pills, two liters for number two plus 12 pills, and you dump it in the toilet along with number one and number two. Twice a day, they got there, reported their temperature, and after 11 days, they went home with a QR code on their phone that said green. You're free to go into public spaces. Ask yourself, do we do anything like that? No test, but vigorous contact tracing and supervised isolation. Something like that is what all of East Asia did to control this. And that is what we're not doing. We're not contact tracing, really, and our self-quarantine, compared to what I just described, is not pretty very effective. Fred, uh, Fred Simon, do you have a question? Yeah, thanks, Eddie. As long as we're dispelling uh, conspiracy theories, uh, why did this not, and maybe you answered the question, Doctor, but uh, one of the things that keeps going around with this uh, uh, manufactured virus uh, theory is that it never spread through into the major cities in China, that it went from Wuhan internationally, but not into Beijing, Shanghai. Uh, how do you account, if you will, for, uh, for that fact? First of all, that's not a fact. It's not it's a, a fact. fact. I, I, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Right. Okay. okay. Uh, it's a factoid, and there are cases in Shanghai, and there are cases in every major Chinese city. But let me give you another story from people who work for me. I have a, uh, one uh, young lady who went from Taijin on the coast half an hour to Beijing. 
during the course of a train ride, half an hour train ride, she's contacted by her cell phone. You're on the train, tell us where you come from and where you're going. Met at the station, asked questions, went to her apartment, asked more questions, and was in home quarantine for 14 days. She couldn't leave her room. She, that was it for 14 days, just because she traveled from one place in China to another. That's part of your answer. Now, what happens to my, my employee who flew from Taiwan? She's got the same problem, only she's even tighter. She has to have a pass for a long time that says she can even leave the compound even after 14 days. So, and now if you go to a restaurant, anyways, there's many, many things they do that we haven't done. So first of all, there are infections in almost every Chinese city, but they control them. And they control internal travel and they control external travel. Not only do they shut the borders okay. down, but if you do travel, they control it. Yes, uh, thank you, doctor. Um, in all the reading I've done, I, I've come to, I have no faith in any of the, the st statistics as far as number of deaths in China. Um, and I really feel that the Chinese, you know, they sat on the, they sat on um, information for, for weeks um, before telling the world what was going on. So, you know, I, I, I want to have a favorable opinion of, of China, but I certainly have no faith in, in the government and how they have reported. Okay, uh, but what's your question? Well, it, it's, do, do you, what is your, do you, do you believe the, the, uh, the, fatal, the number of fatalities that are being re reported by China? Um, I'm going to give you two answers. The first is I think the Chinese statistics are reliable. I think that the question of how many people die as a result of this uh, disease is undercounted everywhere because they only count people who die directly of being infected. They don't count the people like the, the, the diabetics who don't get their medicine, the people whose heart attacks go unattended. Uh, it's probably about twice, maybe even double the number of people that die from uh, the coronavirus directly. That's from direct data that we see from Spain and from Italy. But let me answer your question a different way. I'm getting pretty sick and tired of hearing questions about China when the biggest problem in the world is in our own country. And what we should be asking is not what China did or didn't do. That's now beside the point, long past, water under the dam. What are we doing and what will we do? And it's there that I have really major concerns about what we are doing and what we plan to do to get this under control. I live in New York City and on 77th Street, there is a morgue that looks like a tent outside of, out of a hospital. And at one time, a friend went in there with a camera and took pictures of 40 body bags on the street in front of Lenox Hill Hospital. That's what's happening in our city. I have friends who've died, and I'm sure the people in New York City do too. Let's ask what we should do, not what they did. I gave the Chinese example, not to praise them, but to show how different what they're doing is from what we're doing. My question is about, um, uh, about the, the, the tests. I heard that the FDA approved 
uh, something last week that was in the nature of a, of a testing for antibodies and that there's another one that's coming up. I think a lot of us, and I, I'm remembering back to January, and I was quite sick for quite a while with a, a cough and a throat irritation that um, uh, I went to the doctor. He didn't diagnose it with anything. He gave me a couple of uh, palliatives, if you will, and um, we never figured out what it was. And I'm wondering now if it was coronavirus because it was just when so many things were ha happening out here, particularly in California, and whether therefore I and maybe a bunch of other people are now immune and we could establish that and uh, let us, uh, um, well, contribute blood, but also uh, get more about our business. So thanks, Nancy, for calling on me. Okay, so let me describe some characteristics of the uh, antibody test. It would be nice if a positive antibody test showed that you were immune, but it doesn't do that. That's the first thing to absorb. The tests that are currently approved will detect the infection with a coronavirus, but not necessarily this virus. If you'd have a cold and one third of colds are caused by coronaviruses, this test will pick that up. And if you read the FDA insert and the FDA description of what it's picking up, it said, this is a test for a coronavirus. It will pick up the SARS-2 virus and virus A, B, C, D, and E. That's the first thing. Second thing, just because you have antibodies doesn't mean you're protected. In many cases it does, but not in all cases. So that's the other thing to, to think about. And then the final thing is, it appears as if at least one third of people who recover from milder cases, even hospitalized cases of this infection, don't make significant antibody responses. And we don't know how long protection lasts. We think that for this family of viruses, protection may last nine months, may last a year and a half. It isn't long lasting. So is it a guarantee that you are immune and can we issue immune certificates? The only way we'd be able to do that is do what's called a virus neutralization test where they take a sample of your blood, dilute it, one to 1,000, one to 3,000, one to 10,000, and see what dilution will it prevent the virus from infecting another cell. That's the only way you would know if you were protected. And we do not have that capability to any extent today. So the test may tell you you've had a coronavirus. You'll still be uncertain whether the virus you had that gave you that cold was a SARS coronavirus or another coronavirus. And if it's negative, you still might have had it. So unfortunately, that's the reality that is obscured by the general hope that we'd have a simple test that says, yes, I'm immune. And that next up, I'll give you the, the lineup is Howard Newman, then Lee White, then Stamen Ogilvy, then Andrew Brickman. Howard? Yeah. Self off mute, just a sec. We can hear you. Zoom here. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I have an entirely different kind of question, which is not going to beat up on China. 
So this is two questions, really, one of which is you talk about a virus which mutates often. This is the third or fourth coronavirus which has we've had in the past 20 years. Two questions related to that. One is how often should we expect to face a challenge like this? And number two, um, we seem to be relying on social distancing and the hope for a vaccine for disease um, which most of us will survive. Is that the right long-term strategy for people, or should we be trying to um, develop um, a kind of a survivor bias for this kind of disease? I know it's easy for me to say here in isolation, but aren't we challenging kind of, are we creating for ourselves as many problems by your approach to isolation rather than some other approach? Let me ask that you, you ask a lot of questions there, but um, let me say I'm highly confident we're going to have a vaccine uh, within a year, year and a half at most. Uh, I'm highly confident we're going to have drugs that are effective in protecting us. That those drugs and drugs used in combination, like we're familiar with using for cancer and HIV, used in combination will be able to prevent almost all coronavirus infections. So I think that is a medical solution. You asked why there's so many uh, uh, coronaviruses. These aren't mutations like the flu. This isn't what's called the antigenic drift where the same flu comes back slightly changed. This is really a different subspecies of the virus. It's like you're attacked first by a German shepherd and then by a chihuahua, okay? The chihuahuas are the colds and the German shepherd takes a bite out of you. So there are a lot of these viruses in nature. Now, at the very beginning of the uh, discussion, I talked about how human ecology has given rise to a new niche, which is favorable for viruses. So we could expect this very frequently. And if you just track how many times this is happening. Now, in my lifetime, this is a third big pandemic. I suffered through polio, as you did, I am sure. We suffered through the HIV epidemic, which has killed 50 million people today. Most people forget epidemic when they're talking about it. And now this one, which is you know, really on the upswing, so we don't know. So those are some of the answers to the question. Uh, I could, there, you've asked a very deep question about how society should react to this new reality. And I think there's some systemic things or systematic things we can do to protect ourselves from uh, uh, this viral reality. But uh, we can talk about that at some other time. Thank you. Uh, you expressed skepticism about the antibody testings and the vagaries of that and the uncertainties of that. And then you suggest that the vaccine will be available, uh, not immediately. Would you mind sharing uh, with this group because you're probably of the same vulnerable age that I am, to the degree to which you would be willing to be less self-isolated without a vaccine or even travel domestically or internationally without a vaccine? Uh, a vaccine or a therapeutic drug that I had high confidence that if I got sick, it would cure me. Exactly. Um, you know, that you've asked a very important question and one we're all gonna have to answer over the coming months. Uh, because we can't live this way. It's not going to happen forever. We just can't do it. And so the, the, the question is, 
are we or is any society putting in the protection that will make you feel confident to go out and about? And I am very disappointed in what we in this country are doing as compared to what could be done, even compared to India, believe it or not. India, without its tests, is doing contact tracing based on somebody getting sick and isolation on a massive scale. They have the infrastructure to do it. We're not doing that. So my answer is I'm not confident. I'm not confident to go to any place where there are a lot of people until there is a vaccine or a treatment. Or we can demonstrate that we've got the discipline, the organization in place to do contact, quick isolation, contact tracing, and serious isolation of all those who've been exposed. That's my answer. Everybody's gonna to come to their own answer, I'm sure, but that's mine. You know, it's a question I talk about with, I'm here with my wife and our two daughters who have graduated from university and doing various things and are back here with us. Uh, and as a question we talk about all the time, what life, when, when do we go out and what can we do? It's a really serious question. Can you go to a movie? Can you go to an opera? How, how crowded should the restaurant be that you go to? Those are real questions. What kind of plane? Will you be comfortable getting on a plane? Do you trust your government to protect you? Is another way of putting that question. And I do not right now. Dr. Hazeltine, you talked earlier about the uh, ease with which these things spread in a modern world economy with uh, seven and a half billion people involved. So my question is, do you think that the world exposure rate, uh, because of the uh, time that it takes for uh, uh, people to show the existence of the virus, has gotten much more broadly disseminated uh, than uh, statistics right now show. We're trying to do the economic comparisons and the epidemiological uh, comparisons, but they all depend on, uh, their math depends on how many people have already been exposed and what's the uh, rate at which uh, we determine whether it's a problem for a person. So do you think, for example, that in the United States, still just a few of us have been exposed or have most of us already been exposed? Uh, the answer is definitely not most of us, but whether that number is 1% or 10% is a question in the United States. So you think it's still... It's open. Question is open. Not resolved until you do a random sample. Uh, and that's where the serology for all its strengths and weaknesses will come in. Once you have a, a rapid serological test and you test a random, a large random sample of the population, you'll get an approximate answer to that. Uh, you have to dis, you have to understand, maybe take retrospective sera to see what the base was before this virus came in. So how much of that's coronavirus in general and how much of it's this virus? But I think it's 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 a it's uh, it's doable. Um, one of the ways this virus cracks our code is asymptomatic period. It's a good way to crack our code. The longer the asymptomatic transmission, the better off it is. And there was no better virus at doing that than HIV. 
HIV, you didn't get sick for seven years. And during that period, there were many ways you could transmit it. And that's why we got 50 million dead. It really solved that problem. Um, so you're right. That is one of the, the longer the asymptomatic period. And some people don't even know they're sick at, at all who can still spread the virus. Don't even have a cold. Okay, Andrew Brickman, then Max, Maxine Clark, and then Barb Grogan. Yeah, doctor, that last comment is a good lead into my comment. Um, there was, uh, and it's probably anecdotal, but they were talking about a maternity ward where women were coming in, pregnant women were coming in, and they were obviously being tested. And um, the percentage of those who had COVID was much higher than the percentage that you would see in a normal uh, distribution that we're seeing elsewhere. Um, the comment the speaker in this situation made was, um, you know, it's, it's probably much more uh, prevalent than we know. Um, and and th that led to a conversation on kind of herd immunity. I heard your comments earlier on immunity and that it's, it's unclear how long we're immune for and what that immunity is. Um, I, I'm, I'm, my question is just, does, can we gather some, any comfort in the fact that herd immunity should take over here at some point and um, that well, should get us back? That's a good question. And um, with a virus that kills people, herd immunity has some pretty unpleasant characteristics. Whether it's killing 1%, 2%, or 0.1%, it's all bad if you're infecting 150, 200 million people. That is now, those numbers aren't good. Uh, you can calculate them yourself. Uh, but the reason we're worried about herd immunity for this virus is something that we've known for a long time. The same family of cold viruses, four or five of them that are coronaviruses, have been around since they were first detected in the 50s. They've been around for 70 years and they're still with us. We don't have herd immunity. You get a cold every year. In fact, you on average get three colds a year. Now, two thirds of those colds are coronaviruses. There are other critters out there, but one third are coronaviruses and they belong to the same four or five types of viruses. And they keep coming back and coming back and coming back. So I don't think herd immunity is a safe bet. First of all, it's inhumane or it's, it's, the consequences are horrible uh, if we have medical means to control it. And second of all, it may not exist. Maxine Clark. Yeah, I was going to change my question slightly because you've answered it in a different way. But um, do you think that the the government uh, in general, besides Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, really understand the scope of this and they're just trying to keep us positive or they really don't understand and therefore we're, we're more at risk uh, because of their lack of understanding? And what can we do to help them understand um, from professionals like yourself, other doctors and scientists? They understand. They're scared to death. They understand. You know, I've worked with Tony for years and years and years. I worked with Bob Redfield side by side, years and years and years. They understand, perhaps even better than I understand. They are people, I'm more theoretical. I'm a lab guy, a company guy. They put their hands on these sick people and have tried to heal them. So they understand. Uh, we are working in a political system, which is extraordinarily difficult for them. Every time I see them, my heart breaks because I know what they know and I know the environment they're in. It is for them to be able to do that day in and day out is a remarkable lack of heroism. 
because what they are seeing is such is such a travesty. It's almost beyond belief. So it isn't that they don't know. They know and they know what to do, but they're hampered and they can't move. They have a very, very, very tight window to maneuver in. And uh, it's what you're watching every day on TV is a tragedy. So what do you think we could do as business people with influence to change their, help them get the message across? Because what you're saying is, um, you know, a, a totally different picture than what we're getting about going back to work and getting ready to go back to work. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a good answer to that because the problem is how do you change the president's mind and actions? And I, I don't know how to do that. Maybe you do. And maybe that's a good thing for your community to think about. Um, you know, I used to be part of, uh, I was on the executive committee of the, uh, the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And there are some ways, and we had ways of talking to the administration and vice president, president, other people would come over and a lot of the administration. But in this administration, it's just really different. You don't have a rational decision maker. That's our problem. We don't have a rational decision maker. And how do you work in that kind of system when you know what's happening? This is a, this, if, it was, if it was Sophocles writing this, he couldn't have written a better scenario for these guys in their position. I'm telling you, it's, it's a tragedy. Anyway, we can move on. Okay. No answer to your question, I'm sorry to say. Before, thank you. Um, be, before we all got online, you were talking about some drugs that looked very effective and didn't get to where they needed to go or got get the approval. Where are those drugs? And, you know, is there the potential for them um, getting online and helping? Uh, the answer is where they are is they've been pulled out of the freezer about six months, six weeks ago. Uh, and people are working as hard as they can to get them manufactured, tested. Uh, and so the, you're going to see in the next uh, six to eight months, a whole raft of new compounds. So let me just say, I've been involved in understanding new viruses, understanding their weaknesses, developing successful drugs. And this is not a hard problem. This is a soluble problem. You know, there was a New York Times story I saw just yesterday, written in 2003. I pointed to the sculpture to my right. The scientist was interviewed who did the structure of the SARS protease. And he had a compound he was working with with Pfizer. He said, oh, this is, we're really excited. We're gonna bring this drug to market with Pfizer. They're all behind me. SARS went away and all funding went away and Pfizer's interest went away and that drug is on the shelf. He re-pulled out that drug again. That drug works against this virus, but it never was tested in people. There are about 15 drugs, I've reviewed the literature, that are in that same boat. They're very specific against viral targets. They work on the conserved part of the virus, which is conserved across all of these viruses. And they're now being put forward. It's gonna take time because first of all, you have to manufacture it, then you have to test them for safety, and then you have to test them for efficacy. Well, we can, we've learned with HIV how to do that fast, uh, but fast is nine months maybe eight months, something like that, but that's where they are. They're right now in the, going through the first six to eight weeks of a eight to nine month period. 
But the FDA is all geared up. All the work we did and all the work that the activist community did to get the FDA to change its processes. Let me give you one example. With HIV, it took a long time to get sick and die. They were allowed to approve drugs just based on that fact that it dropped the virus load. But we could do the same thing here. Within minutes or days, let's say a day or two, you can see the virus load drop if the drug works. So you do that at 10, 20, 30 people, and you know you've got a, you've got a winner. The first drug for HIV was approved with about 40 people. You can do that quickly. So we can, we can do this, and we will do this, and there will be drugs. Uh, and in the meantime, there's going to be something else to help people. I'm right now working with some people that are trying to revive a very old idea, horse serum. You immunize horses instead of people who have been infected. You immunize horses with this. You take the serum and you treat healthcare workers. I just, paper came across my desk just today. 20% of Americans who are known to be infected are healthcare workers. 20%, 50,000. That's a number to think about. And three quarters of those are women. With something like the horse serum, we could protect those workers, just like we protected people from tetanus. So there may be things for the next three or four months that we'll be able to get into uh, people's hands that can protect healthcare workers and may be able to save lives. John Martin. Dr. Hazeltine, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your insights, to be sure. Um, my question is, if, if, if I think in your comments, you mentioned that we should expect that we'll see some kinds of these viruses with some level of regularity in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and if it takes 12 to 18 months to develop a vaccine, it feels like we're always going to be playing from behind. So how do you... How do just, we, how, you how, you've how, just... Uh, pitched the ball down my sweet spot. <laughs> Thank you for that question. I'm writing an essay right now. The not so uncommon cold. Beware the not so uncommon cold. I have been advocating, as have a number of other my friends, to be prepared by having drugs on the shelf ready to go for what we know is coming. Coronaviruses. We knew that more were coming. If we had done things right, we would have stockpiled, US government would have stockpiled a drug for all coronaviruses, a drug or two. We could have done that and we can do that to protect ourselves from the next epidemic. The hell with the pharmaceutical companies that need to profit. Government should do it to protect the economy, if not our lives, okay? Now, we know a new flu virus is coming. You know, there isn't a single drug that's approved, really, to work for flu. There's some that work a little bit, but they don't really work for flu. We could solve that problem lickety-split, same as we did for coronaviruses. There's a whole other family of viruses called Coxsackie viruses. If you're a recent dad or granddad, you might know about those viruses. Well, those can turn really nasty, just like the coronaviruses. They have cousins that cause really bad diseases. Rarely, but they have them. They're going to come to get us too, and we can knock those off. I'm asking for a major research program that stockpiles these drugs to protect us against threats we know are coming, just like we do 
for bioterrorist attacks. I know that because I created one of those drugs, which is the first one to be stockpiled by our government for anthrax after the post office tax. They stockpile a drug that even if you're not vaccinated, you can be protected against an antibiotic strain of anthrax. They do that. We have all the legislation. That's what we should do to answer your question. There is an answer and it's doable. We've got the legislation that allows us to do it. And as part of this CARE Act, something people haven't paid attention to, there's $3.8 billion to bring such treatments to market. Now they'll be mostly for coronaviruses, but they could be for other things as well. Len Lowenstein, last question. Thank you. Um, first, thank you, doctor, for your candor and what you have done and what you are doing right now. Um, hypothetical question that you, you kind of referred to this earlier. Let's just say that you had Dr. Fauci's job and full discretion, hypothetical. What would you be doing right now to protect the country for the next two months? Well, it's not Dr. Fauci who should be doing what he's doing. It should be my friend, Bob Redfield, or Azar in the White House. Because Dr. Fauci's actual job isn't to be the nation's doctor. It's to make sure we do all our research right. Every minute he spends in the White House, he's not spending overseeing our research effort. And God knows he's a great at that. He's been doing it better than anybody in the world for the last 40 years. He is fantastic. You know, I had the great pleasure of working very closely with Tony for, for 15 years. Uh, there's nobody better. So we need a strong decision maker, a czar for this problem in the White House. We have czars there, but they're not the right ones. So if I were there, I, would, I wouldn't want Tony's job for all the tea in China. Okay, not a, not a job you in, I, I would envy. But, but we need to get him back to work and put people with the authority and competence to do the job right. We can do it. We're Americans. We can do it. We're just, it's, it's, it's just frustrating to see what we're doing. Dr. Hazeltine addresses a number of fallacies that have spread about the origins of COVID-19. It's spread and what can be understood from antibody testing. You heard Dr. Hazeltine express real concern about America's public health response, but also hope that medical innovators here and around the world are rising to the challenge. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.